0: The Vincast gets all of its support from the many guests who appear on the podcast. And uh, in turn, I would really appreciate you guys supporting the them in their various businesses as much as you can. Um, so, for example, uh, I highly encourage people to jump onto the app store and download Vinus uh, and start using that to log and share all of your wines. I also encourage people to get in contact with Phil Smith uh, from the Wine Depository, which um, is a fantastic uh, website, um, direct online selling uh, wine store that also runs events and uh, very soon my good friend daniel honan who's been on the podcast a few times is going to be launching wine idealist tours and uh, so that's going to be running tours out to the hunter valley uh, without the without the support of the many guests that i have on the podcast it wouldn't be possible to run it so of course i appreciate everyone's time uh, in appearing on the show, but also I appreciate anyone who listens to the podcast supporting them in their many businesses because without us all supporting each other, the, uh, the wine industry wouldn't be what it is. Hello and welcome to the Vincast for 2015. My name is James Guestbook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And I hope you guys had a really lovely Christmas and New Year period. I know I did. Um, you know, I hope you spent it with some family and friends, maybe had some time off. And uh, most importantly, open up some really nice bottles of wine and keen to hear from you what you uh, had and if it worked well with the food you might have had over that period. Um, obviously, it's uh, great to have you on board for 2015. Really excited to, uh, to have some, uh, some really great guests coming up on the podcast as always. As always, I'm really keen to hear from you if you have some suggested topics you'd like to hear about or if you have some guests you'd like to get on the show. I had some really great suggestions suggestions on Facebook and also Twitter uh, so hopefully I'll get some of the people that, um, that you guys have uh, you've asked for on the podcast soon. Uh, for the first episode for the year I actually recorded an episode um, pre- previous to Christmas with uh, Peter Scudamore Smith master of wine. He was actually the second master of wine in Australia um, back in the early 90s and uh, he's based up in Brisbane. So uh, again, I had a Skype call, uh, just in advance, apologies, uh, Brisbane is a lot louder than I uh, I thought it would be, uh, and Peter being a very busy man, he had um, some emails coming through and also some phone calls, so you might actually um, pick up a few things, I apologise for the quality of the sound. Um, and Peter was uh, discussing his background, uh, the various involvements he've, he's had with Australian wine, but also wine in, uh, in Europe and some of the exciting things that he's doing now. So I hope you enjoy the episode. It was a really interesting chat. I, uh, I uh, am a big admirer of Peter and, um, yeah, I hope you get a lot out of it. As always, keep in touch with me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Intrepid Wino. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. La We'll come back to that later. Enjoy. Peter, thank you very much for joining me today. James, my pleasure here in Brisbane. Uh, how's the weather up in Brisbane today?
1: Um, well, after the cricket destroyed the Indians, um, overcast and quite humid. Hmm.
0: Maybe that, that uh, sums up the mood of the Indian team.
1: Yeah, well, actually, climate change is doing amazing things in all parts of the world. No no parts untouched. Uh, (laughs) We had the most incredibly hot summer in the end of autumn.
0: Wow. End of spring, sorry, end of spring. And what do people tend to drink this time of year up in Brisbane?
1: Well, 75% of the state's consumption is white wine. Uh Um, Obviously, a fair part of that's in the tropics, subtropics. Um, Tourists... um, I think most of the tourists, most of the rosé consumption in this state is probably done by tourists. Okay. Um, Yeah, so you know, really chill, chill wine uh, of any type. Nice and fresh. Nice and fresh, but you know, just like the the trends elsewhere in Australia, there's enormous volumes of uh, Sauvignon Blanc and 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 that family Mm. are consumed. But the the big grower is uh, the Pinot Grigio, or Light home wooded white with a bit of style rather than sweetness and sugar and you know, and of course the Chardonnay is not a popular variety up here. It it is amongst the Well, well well-traveled or more sophisticated drinker, but yeah uh, yeah, just just not the thing and of course Shiraz dominates the the, uh, red consumption really. Are you from Queensland originally? Yes, I'm born in the South Bennett. Okay. A long time ago and and, uh, I'm the son of a grazier, peanut farmer, um, cotton grower uh, and very late in his life my father planted vines uh, out of interest with my interests. He actually went to a vineyard which was established in Queensland in 1869. Wow. That's the Roma Villa property which sadly is no longer there. Um, Over the last few years, the owners virtually withered away. Queensland had some terrible floods in the the western downs and the western areas over the last four or five years. That property got flooded twice in two years. Oh no. Um, They lost all their stocks. They lost all their history. They, They even lost Documents went back to the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties of all their prizes they'd won in London and places like that. Uh, It's terrible, terrible Mm -hmm.
0: thing. Um, What was what was your sort of, I guess, your early interactions with wine that kind of gave you that inkling that set you on the path to pursue a career in wine?
1: I was a chemistry student at the University of South Queensland. Yep, and. I became interested in booze generally and probably rum in, rum in particular uh, as a okay. student because that's that's the drink of, um, I guess, blokes in uh, uh, in Queensland in that in those times. I certainly hope it was Bundaberg. Yes, oh, yeah, dark rum. Uh, it <laughs> sent, you mad, sent you mad. But I took an interest in the functions which were been held particularly in the, in the refectory, the student refectory, which at night time quite often um, companies from the, the university was out in the, the fringes of Toowoomba, and uh, a lot of uh, businesses used the facilities to hold functions. And at those functions in those days, they served
0: wine. Okay. And How did you get involved with them, them? I was a waiter, you know. Oh, you were working, okay.
1: Yeah, students earn a few bucks and... Sure. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I uh, I was on a scholarship um, to be a teacher, actually, learning science. Mm-hmm. And, um, my spare time, I was a waiter, and I used to help myself to some of the wine that was being served, and uh, this and this occasion, I can recall the wines very well. It was fat uh, Terell, Vat uh, 7, or Vat 8, mm-hmm. and um, Wins Koonawara Shiraz, and... It turned out to be a medical conference, or the local medicos meeting, and of course, if the medicos haven't been the the sort of cradle of Australian wine industry in terms of consumption mm. and proliferation of knowledge, um, I don't know who haven't. And um, this man tapped me on the shoulder one day as I was drinking sh- sh- shiraz at my my knockoff drink, probably way past midnight. He said young fellow if you really want to know about wine he says you should come around uh, to visit me um so i did visit him because he had a very lovely blonde blonde daughter about my age <laughs> and uh we became very friendly and um i guess that was the start of that, that medical fraternity uh, really mentored me uh and the dental fraternity in toowoomba uh lays to go to visits to Rutherglen. Rutherglen was the Holy Grail in those days. Uh, Morris and um, particularly Bailey's. Bailey's was a had a little outpost in, in Queensland, in Toowoomba amongst the dentists and the medicos. They used to love Bailey's hermitage. And uh, yeah, so that's that's really how I got interested. And then of course then I married the daughter of a dentist mm-hmm. and um, you know you have these tea parties. Well I had a cellar party and I was given some of the greatest wines that were around in those days. Uh, great Western Shirazs from priests and um, priests really't exist anymore. No, but the the priests era wines which were under great western Great Western Shiraz, yeah label. okay. Um, that sort of thing. Um, Liniman's Hunter River porphyry is a dessert wine.
0: I was Porphyry porf- 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 pearl is that what was No porphyry.
1: P-O-R-P-H-Y-R. When I,
0: when I started working in wine, which is, you know, 10 years ago now, was, I was at Liquorland, they still had, I think they still had porphyry. You could still buy it.
1: Yeah. That's Mobile Intimums. That was the, the, the dessert wine. That's the uh, sweet wine. It was a pasito style. pasito on the vine. In other words, grapes allowed to ripen on the vine and uh, dry out, dehydrate, and then make this unbetritus affected late harvested sweet semillon yep so that's it's a
0: very common style in, in italy
1: there was a great wine made by Penfolds, 404 i think it was in 1960 that is that is a, a collector's item not as big a collector's item as have it been 68 but uh you know the same same genre in the same era mm-hmm. just that many people don't drink sweet and dessert wine so i guess that's, that's why it's less significant.
0: Did you find yourself responding to particular styles or particular regions early on? No, look, I was
1: like a kid in a toy shop. Um, I had my mouth open and anything that would be poured down it, I'd uh, ask the questions and appreciate it. Um, I developed great mentors. Um, Victoria's famous man was Douglas Sebel. He was a mentor. Max Lake in the Hunter was a mentor. Len Evans and the hunter was a mentor and the only one living today is Stewie Anderson was also a mentor so those sort of four men serially poured good wine down my throat and said here Sonny listen to this and you need to try this and you need to meet that bloke. And, you know, so you,
0: you studied um, science to become a teacher did you work as a teacher after university or did you follow a different path? Uh, I was sort of
1: Closely, but not totally corrupt, in the, the what was the country party and now the national party because I came from Joe Country. So um, I was able to swap departments. I can't say how that happened, but I swapped departments. So I was supposed to be a teacher, and I ended up in the department of Prime Industries as a food, a, a trainee food scientist. Okay. Oh, okay. Applied my uh, love of science in the food area and, uh, up a food, a principal food scientist.
0: Did that, did your kind of interest in wine have anything to do with that? Yes
1: and no, um, there was a man in our department who was assigned to get involved in wine. Yep. And, uh, so he had five years head start on me and, um, it turned out that he wasn't accepted as a, a trainee wine judge. And uh, I got the Guernsey after him, so he he sort of was told by the, the authorities at the, the royal show that um, no, he didn't have the palate to go on, and uh, so I started to get involved in in wine, and in parallel to that, I was very active in wine drinking. So <laughs> I was very active in fundamental. Uh, well. I did a lot of uh, options games. I used to be an options game winner here. Uh, two out of three years running, when they? Those national options games. Uh, I was a Queensland winner. Um, so I used to spend a lot of time guessing and working out how to what a, what a wine tasted, how it did, and uh, so yeah, I was I was sort of paralleling that with that interest. And then in 1980, uh, I decided to become a qualified wine maker. So I became a um, uh, distance education student of Charles State University
0: okay um, in terms of like learning how to assess wine, um, I would think it's probably pretty different back then to how it is now how, how did how did that did you learn that before you started the wine making course?
1: Yes, because I've been a judge for three years.
0: How, how Were you like? What was there any kind of formal training? I know that oh. Len, Len Evans was someone who was very uh, instrumental in in kind of training, particularly judges. Obviously, that's that's part of the reason that, that you know the Len Evans tutorial exists. But yeah. um, how, how did how did you approach it?
1: Well, I just had um, a background in food science, so I was actually working with taste panels. Yeah. So I developed the rigor for food assessment, and wine's just one subgroup of that, so oh, okay. I was running taste panels, being a part of taste panels, I understood the statistics beside uh, you know, beside results you get out of taste panels, uh, re- research and development of, of food products uh, I was thoroughly involved in, so the, the group I worked with had a full-time sensory specialist, mm-hmm. uh, and I was one of the um, sort of uh, graduate people involved in in that program and we'd have taste panels going every day and we learned a lot about the various types of taste panels and how to assess products without being biased. If you know what I mean. Yeah, I
0: do actually, you know, because I did the master's uh, degree at the University of Adelaide in wine business, you know, we did a whole component on on testing, like triangle testing and stuff like that, you know, where you have three three samples, two are the same and one's different, you had to determine which one was different that kind of thing? Yeah,
1: no, well that was that was regularly done. I'm also a qualified coffee taster, so I've worked in Nestle in Switzerland, uh, in the area of coffee, and I've also worked in France in coffee and Belgium and Holland in coffee. Uh visit a lot of producing areas. Of course New Guinea is the closest one to Australia, which makes Marvellous, grows marvellous coffee.
0: Sure.
1: So I was virtually a sensory specialist when I got involved in wine and then I developed that, uh, I guess, a lot more intensely because I actually liked the product. (laughs) You can become an avocado sensory specialist but you can only eat so many avocados. Mm. You can't collect them.
0: Um, You can't keep them.
1: Yeah, and there's not... Too many great uh, varieties of avocado, whereas the varieties of uh, wine and wine styles is just innumerable, really, around the world.
0: Mm. So how did you find um, studying winemaking uh, by distance with Charles Sturt, obviously probably the m- most important uh, winemaking uh, institution uh, in the country?
1: I really enjoyed it, but just about killed me, uh, yeah. because I maintained a full-time job yep. and studied full time. Yeah. I was carrying three and four subjects a semester.
0: Sure.
1: Um, I lost a marriage short. Okay. Um, but my kids still love me. Um, and of course they're really enjoying, uh, I'm down to a second generation now and, the, and I guess they'll enjoy wine just as much as my, my kids have and they've had a quite incredible, I guess, uh, not indoctrination, but, uh. Part of the learning curve, I suppose, or part of the journey that um, I guess... Osmosis. <laughs> yeah, but see, you've got to look at our background. I came from a very boring uh, English scotocracy background that only had the three veggies and overcooked meat and had never heard of olive oil and um, spices, you know what I mean? and never had a... Didn't know what lemongrass was and, you know what I mean? Sort of really... Mm-hmm. really I had a diet as a kid of mutton, 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 and more mutton, three t- day, you know, three times a day. Yeah. So you know, my first trip to, to Europe, which was in 1985 when I won the Band of Champagne award, was a real eye opener, right? I, you know, I sort of not eaten a lot of really interesting French and Italian foods in Australia and probably ten years prior to that, but really uh, Europe really opened my eyes to to think that. The geography is so close, Britain is so close to France, yet, you know, as a, as a country in Australia, we were so far away. Mm.
0: It's interesting, uh, you know, I, I think about that and I think about whether or not, I guess the difference with continental Europe, France, Italy, to a certain extent, Spain, you know, those are countries where they're producing the wine and it... Sort of makes sense that the wine and the food would sort of go together. Whereas in, in England and in the United Kingdom, because the wine is not coming from there, there's no kind of de- correlation at all towards the cuisine. So there's probably less, just I guess, natural kind of f- food and wine pairing or understanding about how they, co- they, they coexist. I, I guess, you know, food and wine looked at as separate entities.
1: Well, I guess my forebears came from Berkshire, so I guess they were close to the whiskey industry or to the cider industry, or what they were to the wine industry. Yeah, fair enough. And um, I guess to, to a limited stage, um, a lot of the recipes of West, you know, Western England and Northern England included, you know, junk hair or use of cider. Um, certainly,
0: wine didn't prevail at all. It just wasn't wasn't thought of. Mm. It's really funny. Like I, we do talk about stuff like jugged hair and mutton um i i watched like maybe tv shows from the maybe the 60s 70s that kind of thing stuff like um monty python and they make references to these these foods these very british foods that i i just i had no idea what they were i i I remember reading the hobbit and the the trolls having an argument you know like discussing mutton and i had to ask my mum, what's mutton I'd never even heard of it before. Uh, you know, is there, Was there any kind of eth- much of an ethnic presence where you were sort of when you were younger? Because I know that like in Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide as well, I guess, you know, there were a lot of Italians who were come post-World War Two, and, and they were kind of introducing their their cuisines and, and stuff like that.
1: Um, generally, no, except with a broad brush, you're talking British, so you, you had... Have- sure doesn't include the Irish because that was separate, but you had, you know, Scottish, English and then maybe some Irish input. But there were pockets and the pockets were very inbred. So that inbreeding was a means of maintaining the the fun you know, the funds, the assets of, of families, a family. So you didn't want anybody to, to dilute them. So sure. they had German, you know, pockets of German origin, you know, the same way as the Bross Valley was settled, you know, parts of eastern Australia where you have a lot of German um, you know, German settlers. Yeah. Um, the rest of it, no, it really wasn't, it, it, was, it was subsistence, it really wasn't. There were no TV shows, there were no wine books, there were no food books, there were no reality shows. Mm. Uh, very hard to get a book on cooking, you know, yeah. Margaret, Fulton, Margaret Fulton was the first and it was just good old Aussie, you know, Aussie standard stodgy cooking. Mm. So you know, and you until the Let Evans started off the, the Wine Information Bureau in the 60s, uh, for instance, there was no culture unless you came out of uh, families who had a and a lot of that existed in, in Victoria, and to some extent in parts of New South Wales. Uh, very rarely, other than the Western Downs, where the the squatters there were. Uh, sheep people who'd come from the Macquarie Plains, which eventually come from uh, the Liverpool Plains, which means they'd come from Sydney, where they'd, you know, uh, some of the the forebears had a background in cooking or had, you know, parents who actually didn't only drink whiskey, they actually bought claret, you know, and uh, I guess the first real influence that my family had was during the big wool in the 50s, um, all the stock and station agents, the, you know, the elders, McTaggarts, all those sorts of companies, actually used to sell everything. Like you'd get your your barbed wire, your fence posts, your sheep dip, and your champagne all in the same delivery.
0: Sounds like uh, Costco.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of stuff. But the champagne brand, which was favoured, was Verve Clicquot. Sure. Uh, because Ellis was a distributor of Earl Clique for you know fifty, sixty years from the late eighteen nineties onwards. Yeah. And uh, when people made a lot of money in the bush, they enjoyed it. Um, and you know, a lot of those during that war burn of the fifties, a lot of champagne was drunk at Christmas time.
0: Mm. So once you'd, once you'd um, finished the the winemaking degree, obviously it was a, a big struggle. Uh, what what were you sort of the next movements?
1: Well, I then decided I wanted to become a master of wine. Wow, okay. So and,
0: how, how long ago was that?
1: Oh, uh, that was uh, early 80s, early 80s. So I was watching the, um, the boom and bust of the Australian wine industry because we went through this huge overproduction of red, red grapes in the Hunter Valley and uh, in areas further south. There was, and there was a vine pull in 1986, this is the
0: like well, you know, we had another boom and bust in the 90s, didn't we?
1: Yes, yes, and of course, we're still suffering from that. But, um, yes, in the 80s, there was too much red around, and the upper 100, particularly, though, had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres established that um, were overproducing, so uh, they all just went to, to nothing, really, they just let go. And of course, we know in South Australia, people were paid three thousand dollars to pull out an acre of vines. Uh, I guess in the Brussels Valley today, really that's, that's good
0: money in those days.
1: Yeah, but those no, it wasn't. You think about the value of a hectare of well, yeah, fifty-year-old serais today. You know, it's worth yeah, yeah of course now thousand mm. um, dollars. But I get given three thousand to pull it out. That's just how. Uh, I guess narrow-minded and near-sighted uh, the authorities were in that era mm. so no I, I, um, I looked around I wasn't making much wine then the granite belt was really struggling um, from lack of finance because in in area in an area which is small or uh, out of out of the usual because everybody expected the granite belt to be making. Huge full-bodied wines in Queensland because it was hot Little did they know that at a thousand meters you make quite fine meeting the light-bodied Cabernets and Shiraz and Chardonnay, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, so that area struggled for a long time to to develop. So I spent some time there. I actually was in 1988-89 and I was consulting winemaker to one of the larger properties uh, in that area but um, really, I really struggled to find uh, my niche. I, I thought many times, I love living in Queensland, I love living in Brisbane, but should I travel? Should I go to Western Australia? Because it was really, what was going on in Western Australia was really exciting. Mm. Um, Margaret River was just starting to, to, to form and um, other areas south. I had lots of friends going over there.
0: That was post uh, back-to-back Jimmy Watson trophies from uh, Kate Mintel Cabernet, wasn't it?
1: Exactly. I had an influence in both those results because I, at the time I was a judge at Melbourne Wine Show.
0: Oh, really? Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. and um, yes, it was a very controversial wine. Um, the, the first vintage, it was really herbal, right? Today, you know, really, really herbal, it was, but it was it was just so different and it, and it just really under... Right, the fact that the wines of Margaret River, the Cabernet wines of Margaret River, are so amazingly great. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. uh, if you plant Cabernet Margaret River, you're going to have a certain standard anyway, just because of the climate.
0: Sure.
1: And if you don't um, bugger up the winemaking, you're going to have a very decent wine regardless. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, such a reliable climate. Um, and they always have water available. I guess on the eastern coast, we don't have water availability like they have in the west. Mm hmm. So yes, so that, that was uh, really a watershed for me, I um, enjoyed my food science, I enjoyed my coffee skills but I really wanted to get involved in the Australian wine industry.
0: Okay, and, and, and what kind of prompted the idea of becoming an MW? Like, how many MWs were there in, in the world I guess at that point?
1: Not a lot, i had been an avid reader of decanter. And King right. had all these uh, great stories written by MWS or other, you know, very famous people. Particularly Andrew Jefford came to mind. He was always a, a very agile scribe. Uh, at the same time, there was a, a very famous organisation in Melbourne called the Viticultural Society of Victoria.
0: Which is they're, they're the ones who are involved with the Melbourne Wine Show.
1: No, no, just a, that, that was really the old school of great wine-drinking in Victoria, they were the people that, that pull the corks on Lafitte, Latour, Mouton, Ekem, Guigal, Cote-Turones, etc., right. um, they were the people that met every every month and really, you know, they, they were the people who were the forebears of great drinking in Melbourne, really, um, and I used to read about their reports and get awfully jealous <laughs> um, and I said, look, there's only one way to do this, and that I need to go to London and experience these wines for myself. Sure. And that's what I did um, in 1989. And uh, by then, Michael Hillsmith had become Australia's first master wine, mm-hmm. 1987, uh, and he'd gone to London not to become a master wine. He'd gone there to do a cordon bleu or similar uh, cooking Class because he decided that he wanted to get into the the cuisine side because he came out of a, a great wine family. And, Very much so. Yes, and he he'd done something similar but actually different by wishing to sort of immerse himself in the wine trade in the UK. And uh, I, I guess he was sort of sorting out where his life would go after that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was um, an amazing. Experience. Experience And of course I failed my first year Master of Wine exams because um, so I really didn't get it and you know It's, it's a qualification. that takes a bit to get um, But I was tasting th- in three places on a Saturday and I had lots of mentors and there's a couple of Australians also studying Were you working as well? Yes, part-time. I did a little bit of uh, retail work um, a little bit of writing uh, the second year I went back to London, I was actually on a Rosemount travelling scholarship. So when a bloke gets a few quid given to him, he didn't have to work as hard. <laughs> but uh, that allowed me to actually jump across the channel on weekends and go to Champagne and, and, and to go to Loire and places like that to uh, to understand and meet people and I just, just understand how the how the French industry worked. it's is just so different from Australia.
0: Sure. And when did you when did you get the the Master of Wine qualification certification? 1991. 91. 1991. Were you yeah. the second? Second, yeah. Second in Australia. Okay. Um, and and then what was next after after getting such an illustrious, uh, you know, two letters added to your name? Um, what 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 were your plans then? Was well, it to go out you know, and, and consult and have their own, your own business in that kind of field? It, it took
1: a while. It took a while. Um, I started to get involved in the Swedish
0: wine market. Um, System Bogelat.
1: Yeah. Well, more so a bit in Sprit. Because there was a man based in Brisbane who virtually owned the, the Swedish, from the Australian point of view, owned the Swedish market. He dominated the sales of Australian wine up there which mm-hmm. actually accumulated at 9 million litres a wow. year, and he had two wines called um, Aussie Red and Aussie White, <laughs> uh, and they were made, he had such big volumes that they were made in three different wineries in Australia, the, the blending, or the, the, the composition, the, the, the supply, right. three different wineries. Uh, one came out of the Bortley, one came out of what is now called Qualia, but in those days it was Salisbury Estate, and the third one came out of Kingston Estate. So you had three really big family wineries uh, contributing to what ended up at a total of 9 million litres. So I worked with that man for a while, um, and then European Union came along and started to sort of target that uh, monopoly. Because um, both Venice Sprit, which was a, re- uh, a wholesale monopoly, a production monopoly, and System Balaget, which was a retail monopoly, were starting to be disintegrated because of the um, competition. Mm-hmm. Because there would have been a lot of European companies and a lot of American companies would love to have access to that market. Sure. So no, I was the, the blender and the, the, the master wine who stood in front of those wines, and I used to visit Sweden regularly to um, assist with the development and the proliferation of products. In the end, we actually had about seven different products,
0: Uh, but we had
1: the number one selling Aussie white and Aussie red, and used to sell for 50 Swedish crowns a bottle, and that was the bottom end, that was the cheapest Australian wine in the selection, Mm -hmm. used to go into a a returnable, resealable screw cap bottle. In other words, people would... um, buy their wine in a screw cap bottle and return the empties and it'll be refilled.
0: Refilled? Not refilled. Not, not, re, not sort of you know taken away and washed and <laughs> rebottled actually. So it's like swords. Yeah. yeah. Do you have swords? Yeah, refilled.
1: You know, I know, I know so we have swords up here. Not to a great degree, but <laughs> it's uh no, it's a top idea.
0: And 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 then how did you eventually uh, start the consulting business?
1: Well, yeah, in 1996, um, I just went off in my own direction and um, there was a lot of expansion in uh, grape production in Queensland, uh, the government have decided to have a minister for wine. Um, there was all sorts of incentives and um, ridiculous developments. And um, I just immersed myself in them and got involved in uh, various projects many of which actually have not survived. I think over the last uh, five years, has been a very, very tough road for a a lot of companies. And we're still seeing it happen in all over Australia, the the number of uh, wine brands, which are doing it very tough, Mm. barely uh, making enough money through cash flow to keep assets alive. Uh, And uh, I guess the only way that, that it has grown or maintained itself, of course, as seeing that the two big supermarkets sort of suck up the surplus, and um, at the same time, seen a lot of bulk export out of Australia. Now, while I was working with the uh, Swedish market, I also became an industry broker. Um, I don't know whether it's good to say this or not, but I was responsible for a lot of the import of red wine that came into this country. In uh, 1996, 97,
0: because we had a shortage of wine in that time. Wait, so Wait, there was a shortage? Where was the wine coming from?
1: Well, um, a couple of my colleagues who are also industry brokers bought a lot of wine out of Argentina.
0: Oh, yeah, okay. That's where, where I was thinking.
1: Well, yeah. Well, no, I didn't participate in the Argentina importation. That was mainly in 1995. I participated in 1996. Uh, and mine... My importations, which was a million litres, by mm-hmm. two, two different companies in Australia imported a million litres each. That's ninety-nine containers each. Um, was from front, uh, from Spain, so right, southern Spain, sure, Valencia. So, so that, what was this like,
0: to be blended or or bottled and? Yeah,
1: yeah, Matthew Lang,
0: Orlando Cooler Bar casks. That, that wow, product. those are names I have not heard for a long time. Yeah. And they,
1: um, they were just sh- short of Australian, Australian wine, was just a huge short supply. And companies like Hardy's refused to bring in uh, imported wine, so they just uh, closed some brands for a couple of years.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Um, or declassified some wine that uh, was going into high, higher levels. And, um, yes, and you had to nominate on the package The nearest 2%, the percentage of other country wine. So some uh, bag and box products were 100% Spanish wine, others were 87%, you know, Spanish wine, and uh, 13% Australian wine, and that sort of thing. Very detailed.
0: People didn't have too much issue with it? No, well, it's really
1: the the bag and box wine sells as a commodity and at a price. So I guess um, there was just no choice, really. Some brands just had to, you know, the, some companies wanted to maintain their market share. They just right. had to it. And You see this in New Zealand. It's been going on in New Zealand for 20 years because, you know, the, the premium market in New Zealand is a lot higher than the, I guess, the basic the basic market where people just want to buy alcohol at a, a very low price. Sure. Right? So you'll see a lot of chili and Argentinian wine in the... New Zealand market at times, when, when um, the domestic prices are high for their grapes, you know. Sure, sure. The civilian block brings four to five US dollars a litre in the bulk market around the world. That's so good. You can buy Spanish wine at uh, 90 euro cents a litre, so you know, it doesn't take long to work out where the, su- where the
0: supply might come from. In terms of what you're doing now, um, how did that kind of eventuate? So totally different,
1: yeah, so I um, gave up my broking business when I went out as a private consultant, just got involved in wine making, yeah, by the way, i've never totally lost my broking. so I still broke from time to time, I sell it, buy and sell grapes, and buy and sell wine that's because the phone rings, and people say, "Can you supply this, or can you give me a price for that so that those relationships and those relationships extend around the world actually <laughs> that i'm more interested observer there these days than a participant but um no i just um you just evolve yeah Um, the thing is that as a consultant you're the first one to be put off a project if things go tough right you're gone um and i spent a lot of time being um, a non-executive director on a few wine uh, boards Particularly, manage investment schemes, which are in many areas pretty nasty things in those days. But uh, a lot of people lost money. Uh, I'm still involved in some that actually have made money, or have are there today. So I was very happy with my, uh, I guess, my board roles. But um, that's sort of a lesser area because I just I've just evolved my business to remain afloat, to remain relevant. To remain, I guess, a specialist. Uh, and I call myself more a wine professional these days than a, uh, a professional winemaker or a professional viticulturist, even though I've had activity in viticulture and winemaking.
0: Sure.
1: And, and advising people on styles of wines. Uh, I've just di- diversified my business and uh, I remarried three years ago and my wife retired and she learned Italian and that took us
0: into wine and food tourism in Europe, so... Which is, in fact, where I actually met you two years ago. Um, I I was pretty excited when I found out, I think just before I was going to be visiting uh, a great uh, Chateauneuf-du-Pape producer in View Telegraph that uh, I'd be joining Peter Scudamore-Smith, and obviously I was familiar with your name, and, you know, I, I I think at that time I was aspiring to become a master of wine myself, and I thought, oh, my God, this is so... Exciting and uh, yeah, and I it was obviously it's a, it was a lovely visit there, and, and it was it was great to meet you on that occasion.
1: Yes, well, it's, it was nice to see another Aussie in a, in a very French environment, and uh, it's also nice to see English spoken, even though I am now back learning French or back polishing my French. But um, it, it's taken till. 2015 for me to actually conduct a wine and food tour in France Um, because my wife spoke Italian. We've specialised in Italy for for the last four years.
0: Yeah,
1: and uh, now France is starting to generate interest by Australians um, who wish to outside the industry. It's not a a tour for specialists, it's normally a tour for people who normally don't go and conduct a tour. So it's it's a small group. We share the same wines, the same foods, and I'd take them into places you normally
0: can't access. Well, particularly, uh, I've noticed you go to some pretty exotic um, areas of the wine world. Even for wine professionals, they kind of would drool at some of the, 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 the wineries you visit and some of the places you're eating and what you get to experience, like particularly down in Sicily. Sicily is such a, uh, an exciting, dynamic part of the world for wine.
1: It is, and it's something that I guess the Australians have overlooked, because um, I suppose many native Sicilians who have now relocated to Australia over the last uh, 100 years um, took a long time to embrace their own culture and mm. their own grape varieties, and and, and, uh, and now that's happening quite quickly, but um, I guess uh, Australians didn't see Sicily as a great place to visit. Some were a bit scared by the word martial, which is... Probably not an issue for a tourist, it might be a, a domestic issue, but certainly not for people visiting the island and uh, yes, I guess we've certainly provided examples year-on-year year now that uh, it's it's not exotic, it's just actually a nice place and the, the food styles are very high standard and the wine styles are very high
0: standard. Particularly relative to the price. Yes. That was, that was my experience when I was there.
1: Yeah. Well, my tour... Of uh, my ten day tour of um, you know, Toscana and Alp, um Pinte is seven thousand dollars and my same tour for the same period of time and the same standards is a thousand
0: dollars cheaper in yeah. and what have you got coming up in two thousand and fifteen you obviously you're taking some more tours
1: um, yes, for the first time in my life i've got four tours uh, two in France and two in, in Italy the French tour. Took off, and then it was so successful I've had to put a second tour on. The same uh, tour or to different areas? Uh, same tour, but it'll be, be some and different uh, properties in the second tour. So it's a repeat of the first tour. Okay. Four days apart.
0: Um, Which French regions do you go to?
1: I go to Champagne, Burgundy, and Rome, sure. and, and all regions within those regions. And then. Um, in 2016, with a, another high-end developer, I'm in the process of putting together an 18-day tour, which will include Bordeaux and Loire and Chablis. Far out.
0: That's pretty exciting.
1: It's a lot of work, uh, <laughs> but it's got to be profitable for me as a business, so it's, uh, it has to be contained so that the margins are, are tight, and um, there's not too many middle people in between. Otherwise, there's nothing in it for anybody. Yeah. A lot of us maintain through relationships, uh, and I really like those. I really, really highly regard them.
0: But you, you're also, you know, involved in a number of other things. Uh, I bumped into you a little while ago. You were down for uh, a big Italian tasting in Melbourne. Yes, I keep um, a lot of relationships with the Italian community and the French community, so
1: particularly through Italian high-end Italian uh, retail. Mm-hmm. Italian restaurants, and the same with French retail and French restaurants, so uh, this they're the that's where my market is. people who aspire to see where burgundy's grown and made, and people who want to go to, to a champagne house or want to go and look over the Mediterranean Tamina and uh, drink some Norella Mascalese for the first time yeah, yeah. That's, uh, so yeah. Uh, only about 20% of Australians who travel Europe are, are that aspirational at, at that level and they're the people I like to meet.
0: Mm-hmm. But um, if people are interested in, in joining one of your tours in the coming years, uh, what's the best way for them to find out more and, and, and keep across, <laughs> keep in touch with you?
1: Uh, two ways. Uh, they can register on my website for my electronic news or go to my dot au. Uh, website and download the itineraries.
0: Right. Okay. And yeah. uh, and people can follow you on social media as well? Yes, I'm found on Instagram, Delectable, Twitter and Facebook. And it generally it's the same, your Twitter handle is Uncork Cultivate?
1: Uncorked and Cultivate, yeah, Uncorked and Cultivate for Twitter. And um, Pinterest, um, Instagram is Uncorked and Cultivated. Fi- Facebook? Facebook, Uncorked and Cultivated.
0: So it's pretty much across the board. <laughs> yep.
1: Fantastic. Brand.
0: Well, yeah, and um, hopefully at some point in the, in the near future, maybe we can bump into each other again over in Europe.
1: I look forward to it, um, it's a wonderful place to visit.
0: And uh, I, I really do appreciate your time, uh, thank you very much for joining me today, Peter.
1: Well, James, I really think it's a pleasure to be a, a contributor, and I uh, wish you really well with your podcasts. Thank you very
0: much. And I'll speak to you soon. Okay. Thank you. And thank you guys for joining me on this week's episode of The Vincast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, please let Peter know um, or let me know. You can uh, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Intrepid Wino, and you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, you can like me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash IntrepidWino. But uh, come and visit me at my website, IntrepidWino.com, where you can get all the previous episodes of the podcast as well as lots and lots of various writing on there and uh, you'll find a link to uh, itunes and to stitcher where you can subscribe to the podcast and if you do enjoy the podcast and um, would like to share it i would really appreciate it if you could give me a rating and review on uh, itunes or stitcher because it really helps me out but until next time bye